I was saying, you know what, I don't really want to write reports anymore. We're going to have to start doing other ways of communicating. We've got to make a real film about this because the only way to move people, it seems like, <clears throat> is through film. What's interesting about these two films together, it does show like the range of systemic racism and the, yeah. how, how the problem is not just one individual company or certainly like one individual auto worker uh, gone astray. Ti 我不想以后我的子女出来打工也会面临这样的伤害在我接触的过程中间都是接触本西物所造成的这一病生产手机电脑半导体这些很多工人是来自电子行业开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开始开
who have the most protectionist economy in the world. But some of those who hold up the specter of a trade war ignore is that we are already in the middle of such a war that only the Japanese are shooting. I said, if I were president of the United States for two months, I said, I'd fix the Japanese like they've never been fixed. I said, I would put a moratorium on automobiles. But many of their verbal bullets aimed at the Japanese government and car makers have strayed off course and are hitting home instead. I've been followed on the road by uh, hostile people screaming out the window of their car, brandishing weapons in the window and everything else. And uh, I've come very close on several occasions to having a uh, uh, serious confrontation where someone probably would have got hurt. Hi, and welcome to Labor Goes to the Movies Today. Today, we're going to be discussing the 1987 film Who Killed Vincent Chen and the 2016 film Complicit. We're joined by Virginia Rodino and Heather White. They'll be participating in a panel discussion on understanding AAPI hate, building a movement of solidarity and resistance this Sunday, July 18th at 7 o'clock p.m. Both films are available now for free online screening. You can get details on how to access them. You can RSVP for the panel discussion on our website, eclabor.org. Click on calendar. Virginia is president of the Maryland chapter of Apollo, which is the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. It's a constituency group of the AFL-CIO. I just also found out she's executive assistant to the Coalition of Labor Union Women. So she's got two of the constituency groups covered. And Heather is a documentary filmmaker and research consultant, more than 20 years experience in international advocacy on labor and human rights issues. She co-directed Complicit with Ling Zhang and the film released in 2016 was screened at 40 film festivals and won nine international festival awards. And I should also mention that Who Killed Vincent Chen was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Now we have some pretty heavy films and some heavy topics to talk about. And so we are going to start off with something else. We like to ask all of our guests, what is the earliest film that you remember? And yeah, because nobody sees that one coming. <laughs> E.T. So, e. Who said E.T.? I did. E. No kidding. What do you remember about it? I think it was the first film my entire family went to the movies for, and I remember it being very moving and my dad crying. <laughs> it was wow. really, oh. yeah. <laughs> it was very, yeah, yeah. So it really stuck with me. It was pretty magical. Wow. Uh, now, have you, I assume, rewatched it since? And how does that work? Does it hold up? I think so. I, I, I think it does. Yeah, I think just the, the themes around childhood and friendship and so on, they probably hold up pretty well. And Spielberg is pretty good, so. <laughs> He's pretty good. A few awards. He's definitely at his best in that, in that one, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right, Heather, you've had a, you had a minute to think about it. What do you got? I grew up in a very political household, and the very first movie at a theater I was taken to when I was about five years old was a film uh, called China Today which uh, was made in Sweden at a time when, you know, U.S. filmmakers and others, we didn't have diplomatic relations. We couldn't get into China. So this was one of the first 
uh, major films that was able to get into the U.S. and actually get distributed. I saw it in Cambridge, somewhere around Harvard Square with the family and ended up going to Harvard and majoring in Chinese. Wow. So you were just set right on that path from the, so it actually, yeah. at least this is part of the thing is how important films are to our lives. And I'm going to say, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how ET shaped your life, Virginia. I'll come back to that one, but Heather, that certainly seems formative for you, right? Yeah, it was a very beautiful film. And I think there was a kind of a lot of maybe propaganda because it was during the era when there was still, there were communes and everyone was wearing navy blue or green, like army fatigues, Mao suits, all the women uh, had their hair in braids and they were on tractors and there was beautiful sunsets and threshing of the wheat. And just the cinematography was, I think, very beautiful and also made a big impression on me. So when I uh, was working on Complicit, one of the first things I did when we got our first grant was to hire one of China's top cinematographers because I was really committed to making a beautiful film that would touch people in an emotional way and you know really help them feel something. So maybe they might feel compelled to take action and you know contact the companies and get involved in trying to uh, address the issue and put pressure to ban benzene and, and hexane. My question, Heather, is how did it come to you? How did you, how did you begin this project? Uh, I guess I began the project a couple of years before we actually started filming, which was early 2013, when I was very concerned about the suicides at Foxconn, which is the main producer for Apple and had reached out to a number of socially responsible investment funds and folks who had the ability to bring a shareholder resolution against Apple on the suicides. And that led to me um, getting frustrated that nobody was going to file a shareholder resolution about it. So I hired a PR firm and issued a press release to a lot of newspapers and only one of them responded, which uh, fortunately, was the New York Times Shanghai uh, bureau chief, and he uh, wrote a piece. And after that piece came out, it ended up making front page of the New York Times. He came back to me and said, what should I go after next? And I said, he said, I really like reporting on these labor issues in China. And I said, check out Foxconn because they're these suicides of workers that nobody is really doing anything about in terms of putting pressure on Apple. So he ended up writing a really great piece. It was a multi-part story on the front page of the New York Times. And then I got a book contract as a result of my quotes in that article, headed over to China to do research on a book. I had about 10 chapters. And the first one I was going to research was this one about workers getting poisoned and spending time in hospitals that the, the government was paying for because the companies and the factories to cover the workers' medical expenses. So we snuck into a bunch of hospitals to interview workers. And what we found was just so overwhelming in terms of the connection back to Apple and the surveillance on the patients in the hospital and the cover-up and the lack of information getting out to shareholders and customers, et cetera, that I decided we really needed to make a film out of it and get the word out to millions of people around the world so that we could put pressure to reduce just haphazardly and very irresponsibly they've been using very toxic chemicals in the cleaning and the assembly process and the workers that 
do most of the cleaning of the devices as they're on the assembly line are the youngest workers in the factory because they're the least skilled and a lot of them have actually snuck in and are underage. So we were interviewing people as young as 15 years old who'd been poisoned and a lot of them had also lost their hands from working with faulty equipment and machinery. So we just felt we've got to get this story told, but ultimately we had to make the decision not to include the workers who'd lost their hands because our editor said, you can only focus on one topic in a film. You can't focus on too many or the audience gets confused and they don't know what action to take. And we really wanted to have a call to action. One, I know Elise has more questions, but I want to also welcome Virginia to jump in anytime as well, because I know you're going to be facilitating discussion on Sunday night. So feel free to, to do that. I, I've been to China uh, a number of times. I play a game called Go, Heather, which you probably saw old people playing in the parks. And I'm wondering how you got to film, because as it's everything, everybody is watching China, but particularly foreigners. And I would think particularly foreigners with cameras. I had a Chinese co-director who looked like a college student, although she was older, and she was using the camera that she'd gotten in film school and it fit into a backpack. And so we would just travel around with her backpack and do filming with her camera. We would sneak into hospital rooms or visit families in their homes. Um, the Footage from the factories was either done undercover with button cams and, you know, things that you can get at Best Buy, which actually end up working. Um, and I had worked in China for many years and I speak Chinese, so I know how to travel below the radar and not draw attention to myself. And if there were any situations where it seemed too sensitive to have a foreigner, then I would just go back um, to the hotel and just do Command Central, getting texts and uh, phone calls and waiting to make sure that everything worked out or connecting with other people if they needed to have a, an exit strategy, that sort of thing. So there's, you know, a lot that can be done, but in many cases, we had to hire people who looked even younger than my co-director who looked like freshmen in college to be able to get into some of these situations because they don't actually cause suspicion because they look like students and maybe they're coming to see a friend because a lot of the workers who had been poisoned one particular apple factory they were in a hospital that was under such heavy surveillance that it took four efforts to even be able to get in and talk to the workers and they actually had surveillance cameras on the uh, halls of the hospital and in the rooms mm. workers and so after a while one of our assistants who was able to get in she was only able to talk to workers for about an hour and then the nurse came in and kicked her out and they didn't have any particular suspicion against her but ultimately she caught the attention of foxconn for other advocacy work she was doing she was a former foxconn worker she started getting death threats and she called me uh, one afternoon and said i've got to leave shenzhen i'm getting death threats they know my phone number they're harassing me so i'm taking a bus to another province and actually I've never heard from her again. I hope she's oh, a wow. Yeah, but she had put up a, a video on YouTube that started out with just a few views, but it ended up getting thousands of views and it caught the attention of the factory. I can post that video on the chat if you mm -hmm. want. Yes, she, please. Yeah, because yeah. she's a very brave, very committed, wonderful young woman who'd become an activist and was working full-time with one of the below the radar NGOs, all of which have been shut down and canceled 
since 2014, 2015, because the crackdown has just accelerated and we wouldn't be able to make complicit today if we tried because the atmosphere has become so repressive that it's just not possible for folks to, you know, really do the kind of uh, below the radar work. And also we don't want to risk the security and safety of local people because the prison terms and the response of the government now for people who are involved in any type of labor activism is, has just gotten extreme, worse than anything I've seen in over 20 years. Wow. Okay. So I know when we, before at the beginning, you, you said that the, the folks who were in the film uh, are still alive. So you're still in contact with the, the, I guess, the three principles I think of that were. Yeah, with some of them. Not too often because it's not always safe mm-hmm. um, to be in too much contact from overseas now because they're, as advocates and people who've already caught the attention of the authorities, their devices are being monitored. Gotcha. Virginia, I think you were going to say something and I hopped in. Oh, that's a good question. It's a good segue. I'm wondering, Heather, if you could talk about the impact of the film. Were there changes that came about because of it? What is the situation like now? Um, Yeah, actually, we were able to achieve most of the uh, impact and the outcomes from the release of the 10-minute trailer back in early 2015, which was great because it took a lot longer to raise enough money to complete the 90 minute film. It's really hard to raise money to make a 90 minute documentary. And had I known when I got started, I probably wouldn't have tried to do it. It would have just, I would have just made a 10 minute film. After uh, raising our first 50,000, uh, we put it all into making a 10 minute trailer. And that's what we used in connecting with a couple of global campaigns, China Labor Watch and Green America, and also one of the socially responsible investment funds, Harrington Investments agreed to file a shareholder resolution against Apple at their annual general meeting. So the company got quite a bit of pressure. And then we had an article in uh, Wired magazine that uh, profiled some of the characters in Complicit as well as some other workers. And as a result, the combined pressure, over 350 news articles around the world are written about it and little clips on blogs really helped to have the campaigns involved as well because then they were able to mobilize all of their networks. And as a result, Apple agreed to ban benzene and then hexane. And that was announced publicly. And then the other brands became aware of the issue. They always like it when somebody else is getting all the pressure and has the Uh, attention and the embarrassment, but often they're taking note as well and doing what they can to try to preempt and avoid similar pressure on themselves. And actually during the course of it, one of the groups in South Korea, which had been very successful in putting a lot of pressure, public pressure on Samsung, because unlike China and Korea, which is a democracy and they have labor unions, you're able to bring a lawsuit against the company. They had a lot of television footage and coverage of protests and demonstrations and interviews with family members whose children had died as a result of benzene poisoning. And Samsung ended up creating an $80 million compensation fund for their workers as a result of the pressure that the South Korean campaign um, brought. So it was really important. These kinds of efforts to put pressure on a global corporation the ability to mobilize the global 
power of NGOs in countries all around the world. And some of them actually have pretty good funding that they can put towards it, especially if they're in Europe, like Switzerland, France, the UK, we, Sweden, we were able to raise some money for the outreach and just able to elevate the campaign much more as documentarians than we would have otherwise. So we were very satisfied that benzene and n-hexane were banned before we even finished the 90-minute film, because that's that was really our goal, was to eliminate these chemicals, which are needlessly poisoning people and are just completely unnecessary to the manufacturing process. And it, it, they're just the cheapest. So that's what factories in China were buying. They're cheap, they're extremely effective, and unfortunately, they can also cause leukemia. But unless someone's enforcing the laws or someone's enforcing their codes of conduct. Nobody cares, nobody monitors it. And there's actually no monitoring of the devices coming in through customs to see if their chemicals are still lodged in the housings and on the devices themselves. Sometimes you might open a smartphone, it smells really bad. That's the chemicals that are degassing. Wow. Nobody's checking it, there's no standards. Having all of these products produced offshore opens us up to a lot of vulnerabilities as consumers as well. It made me want to throw every one of my devices out. I mean, seriously, I was like, oh my God, this is just death zone right here in front of my face. So yeah, very powerful. And I'm thankful for Chris. I'm thankful for this, the festival for Labor Fest because I wouldn't have known about it. I had not heard of this film before. It was totally new to me. Had you had about, heard about it for Virginia? Yeah, and I heard about the issue. I think I had read some of these articles that Heather was referencing, but yeah, when you watch the film, it is different because it's drawing out these just personal horror stories and, and what it really does. And then the kicker is what Heather just said in terms of it being completely unnecessary. That's really quite the kicker for me too, so. Yeah, just how we're reliant on some of these some of these products and how we have a responsibility to figure out what we're buying and how to and and the power we have as consumers to actually change things for the workers. So I think the film helps to and and what Heather's saying the consequences of that film what that draws out for us as consumers. It, yeah, I called Apple, the 1-800 number, just to talk to a couple of the operators to see if people were calling in and expressing concerns about it once the campaign was going and was getting a lot of media attention. And the two that I spoke to said, this is the issue of the most concern of people calling in over the past couple of weeks. And we've had a meeting about it. And we're estimating that for every person that actually calls in, there's probably a hundred others who care about it and are not calling in. So I was really pleased to hear that they were monitoring and actually meeting about it. I, th I think that we often underestimate our power as consumers, but we have the ability to make or break these corporations. And I think it would be great if we would start mobilizing and, and getting more focused as consumers with grassroots campaigns and boycotts. We almost never use boycotts anymore. You might've noticed it's almost no nonprofits or groups that are advocating boycotts anymore. And that's very, that's very much a, a win for the corporations. I want to go back to, to something that, that you started with, which is talking about you decided to make a film about this, right? You was originally, you know, got this to the Times, so you got a lot of coverage of the issue, but what was it that, that made you want to make a film 
And then the second thing was realizing the difference between a 10-minute film and a 90-minute film, which is really interesting to me as well. But I, I really want to start at that moment where you said, oh, because you know, when you got the coverage, that was effective at getting the story out there. So I think a lot of people would have stopped there and thought, job well done. So what was it that you weren't a filmmaker? Although now that we know what your first film was, we can connect those dots. Uh, but I'm curious about what it was that got you into making a film. Well, I'd worked for many years uh, running a nonprofit that wrote reports for a lot of different stakeholders around sweatshop issues and child labor and uh, violations in overseas factories. Because as consumers, we're so far away, we have no idea what's going on in these factories and the companies are not legally obligated to report on them. Um, so we would write reports and originally our report started out being about 80 pages long, which is way too long, but I just come out of a graduate program at MIT and I really wanted the reports to stand up to academic standards in case they were ever being scrutinized by journalists, for example. But the uh, company said, these reports are too long. So we cut them back to 40 pages. These reports are too long was still the feedback. So finally we got them down to about 15 pages and we're still getting negative feedback that nobody wanted to read a 15 page report about a supplier that they were doing millions of dollars of business with that were exploiting their workers and completely flagrantly violating you know, local labor laws, not just in China, but in over 40 other countries as well that we covered annually. So finally, we got the reports down to like a five page. And I said, you know what, people don't really want to read. And it's not obviously it's not moving <laughs> changes because we were still seeing massive problems in factories like the Rana Plaza, you know, factory collapse and the Tazreen fire in Bangladesh. And originally, I'd started Verite, the nonprofit that I ran because there were so many factory fires in, in China and in toy factories. And most of the time the workers were getting out alive when there is the call of fire and people were running out, but then the factory management would make them go back in to try to retrieve the inventory. And that's when they would get killed because that, the floors and the ceilings would start collapsing. And I just was so outraged by that, that I said, okay, I've got to do something about this. I think I know a little bit about the issue. So idea that people were not reading reports and didn't want to read had already been burgeoning within me for the last few years. And I was saying, you know what, I don't really want to write reports anymore. We're going to have to start doing other ways of communicating. And I liked the idea of making videos, but I really hadn't gotten started and I'd never taken a film course. But then when we found the um, situation in the hospitals in Shenzhen, I was just overwhelmed. And, so, and my colleague was a videographer. I, call, I said, you know what, we've just got to make a, we've got to make a real film about this because the only way to move people, it seems like, <clears throat> is through film. Uh, like your father having uh, been moved to tears, Virginia, in ET. I had been really struck once when I was on a flight back from Myanmar, from it was still called Burma at the time, when I was sitting next to an executive uh, from a company and he said, oh, what were you doing in Burma? And I said, oh, I was working as a research consultant on a film about landmines because people are still getting blown up years after the Khmer Rouge had signed the peace treaty. The situation is still really dire. And he said, oh yeah, that sounds terrible. But he didn't really, 
he didn't really sound like he, it was just, oh yeah, that's terrible. Yet another, you know, tragedy that's happening in the world. But then the movie Mrs. Doubtfire was playing on the, the video screen overhead. And I noticed he was crying in Mrs. Doubtfire. And I was so struck thinking, okay, this film, which as a comedian is the star, is moving this man to tears when in fact my telling him that children and young people are losing their lives and their limbs stepping on landmines in a company that he works for that's doing business in that country, it didn't really engender a lot of emotion on his part. So I said, okay, film's the way to go. We've just got to start where we really have to start communicating these urgent social issues as much as possible through film. So I said, I don't know how to do this, but my colleague had made some videos and they said, we're just going to figure it out and we're going to raise some money. And hopefully because it's Apple, Apple is the only major tech company that has a hundred percent of its production and them unique in that Microsoft, a lot of the other US brands, they're producing throughout Southeast Asia and they have a much more dis dispersed supply chain. But Apple is 100% in bed with the Chinese dictatorship and is benefiting directly from the totalitarian repression of workers where there's no free press, NGOs are shut down, journalists are arrested, their bank accounts are frozen. The situation is as bad as it could possibly be. And yet, as consumers, we've created this $2 trillion monster with our purchases, and they're basically not held accountable and there are no laws yet on the books to make them address these issues. So how are we going to do it? We've got to mobilize people. How are we going to mobilize them? They have to feel something. They have to be emotionally outraged or, or crushed, or they have to be crying, which is how I had my husband who writes beautiful music. He did a soundtrack for Complicit. And my only request was, I want, I want people moved to tears. We've got to get this music tied, you know, directly to what's happening on screen. And I think he did a beautiful job. The opening is absolutely stunning. Yes. yes. I mean, I want to get back to cinematography because it, it, I had to be drawn in and now for the fact that it was a funeral, but also the cultural context. I feel I felt like I was immediately taken into the inside of China in a way that I have never been taken into the inside of China. Right there at literally death's door and the trauma of folks dealing with it and the, the image of them laying him in, into the... the and touching office. his face, touching yeah. his... I mean, it, it, yeah, it, I totally agree. And also it was shot, I realized later when you cut back to it that you, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it's shot in not exactly black and white, I don't think. It's a soft, it's, it, but it's a different color tone. So there's a different feel to it. Those are the, basically the different cameras that we used. Ah. When we could afford the cinematographer, <laughs> then, this, then everything's like really crisp and sharp. And I thought it was a, it it a decision. <laughs> yeah, and then we were using the 12 year old video camera that the first year film student at NYU got for her program. Then, then it looked a little bit more, you know, grainy and, right. and yeah, but she did amazing work because she was able just to sneak into places that journalists from the BBC and other publications were trying to get in, but they were not able to, they got turned back by the police. And again, because she looked so young, she was able to say she was a relative of the families. We, 
built you know really close relationships with all the families of the people who you saw in the film and again back to your question about why we kept going after the 10 minutes was i just felt so obligated to these families that we'd become close to that i just couldn't stop there and not bring that footage to life because they had just taken risks and opened up their hearts and their homes and every time we would go to their homes they would cook lavish meals that they probably couldn't even afford to be entertaining people from other countries with money that was just so tight because they were spending everything on these legal cases to try to get compensation for their children so that they could pay the medical expenses and the factories were fighting them every step of the way and they often lost those legal cases actually wow. very hard yeah very difficult to to get the government um to support them in this i think it was key to my being able to to stay in the movie was the personal piece of it because i have a what's the word conflicted relationship with my view of china Mm, don't uh, first we all? Of all, I'm acutely aware of the racism that come was brought out in, in Who Killed Vincent Chin, and also the current wave of anti-Asian hatred that's come up. And and it's easy to paint China. I mean, the United States has used China as the bad guy, the boogeyman. Now that Russia isn't the boogeyman anymore, China's the boogeyman, and it's all about money and commerce and business. And I know that American businessmen, business people, okay, corporations will poison people in the same way, have poisoned people in the same way. And so the government was part of it, but not so much a part of it. So I did, I can leave the political piece out because I was looking at the personal, even though I know the personal is political. And so that there was some way that I was able to rest that part of me that like, don't be talking about China like that. Because as a socialist, I really held China up until Tiananmen Square. And when Tiananmen Square happened, I just went, oh, whoa, wait a minute. Oh shit, okay, okay, gosh golly, I guess they're not, I guess they're still human, are capable of, as our government is, of doing horrendous things to people yeah. to suppress um, right. dissension. Well, yeah. And, oh, no, Virginia, ahead. I wanted you to respond, because I do want to bring in the, the Vincent Chen film, which, and you all should know that Elise is from Detroit. I texted her after I watched it last night, just a warner, because in fact, I want to get your Detroit reaction. I totally forgot that case took place in Detroit, which is critical. But anyway, to you. Yeah, I think another thing, what you're pointing out, Elise, is Heather's film allows us to critique, I think, the government and still really build solidarity and care for the people. So that's an important, an important piece. And I think we can say that about a lot of governments around the world where we're not being anti we're not being anti-American if we critique our elected officials. So it's th that sort of thing. And so by drawing out those human interest stories about the real impacts of people, I think it, it it's, yeah, it breaks down the borders, but it still allows us to crit critique the right targets, I think. But I'm wondering, and maybe all three of you can answer this, China is such a behemoth, as Heather was explaining, in terms of the industry and the economy. So how do we as workers internationally are there what what movements exist today maybe around building up international solidarity with chinese workers who i think are some of the most oppressed on the planet so just the the crackdowns with the government and our inability to penetrate if we look um at the uyghur region for example and and just people being disappeared and, and killed who are standing up as labor activists so i'm just wondering all three of you, if we know of kind of solidarity movements, particularly looking at the Chinese government and its oppression of Chinese workers. 
Heather, we should go to you for that because I know you had mentioned before we were talking before we got started that you're actually looking into the whole Uyghur situation, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been working with some colleagues and I was very pleased to see that the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act actually got voted for the first vote in Congress and approved yesterday. So that actually could have a huge impact because it would put pressure on American companies who are bringing in products from China which actually goes to Virginia's question about the possibility for international solidarity with Chinese workers. It's impossible. Some of the trade unions in the U.S. have tried, European unions have tried, and they've given up um, because there's only one labor union in China. It's sponsored by the government, and it's totally compromised in terms of union reps in factories, being relatives of management or yeah. you know holding management positions it's just it's never worked and with the crackdown with Xi Jinping coming into office it's become even more impossible uh, so for me having worked in China my entire life my entire career has been involved in working in factories in China before I started the nonprofit that inspects factories around the world it's called verite v e r i t e.org I worked as a sourcing agent for companies doing business in China for 15 years. So I was working in factories for many years. But for me, the only pressure that we can put on is on the corporations because uh, they're the private sector and they're actually the folks who have the most bargaining power with the factories because they're providing the cash for their operations and also with the government because the government can't run without foreign exchange. And it's very complicated because we're not able to just get involved with all the international unions and groups together to try to support a nascent labor movement in China. But China has um, made sure that every, almost every labor activist has been imprisoned. And I talked to someone from the State Department and said, we don't know one dissident who's working on labor issues who's not in jail right now. So, you know, the impossibility of being able to support workers there, it's a reality. That doesn't mean that when there is a strike or uh, a labor action, that there aren't people on the ground, foreign NGO representatives, which is increasingly difficult right now. But previously, up until the last two years, when there was a strike, a lot of times there would be NGOs and folks uh, who were supporting the workers coming in and trying to help them either with money or with resources, helping them get out of the country when possible. But as you've seen what's happened in Hong Kong, that was the conduit for all of these things. And now that Hong Kong has been you know, almost completely shut down by mainland China in terms of the ability for civil society to operate, we're looking at a very serious situation now in terms of human rights and the ability for workers uh, to be able to express any kind of dissent like at the gates of the Foxconn factories, at least in the Pearl River Delta, they have police stations installed, not just security guard stations, but actual government run police stations. Any unrest, even workers just complaining that they got cheated on their last paycheck, police get called and they're just hauled right off to jail. Let me pick up on, on what Elise was talking about in terms of, because it ties into the, the Vincent Chen film, which I have to say, <clears throat> I was amazed at how well that film holds up. I really thought 
a lot of the movies from the 80s are dated. And I really thought a documentary about something this old and maybe it's partly because these incidents are still happening. But I think also there was a whole, and I want to at least talk about this, the, the racial element of that. The, the Chinese guy gets mistaken for a Japanese in a fight over a Black topless dancer by a white racist. Heather, your film was, was, a, it was really moving, but the, Vince, the, the, the Vincent Chen film I found really it made me angry, but at least I want you to respond and, and bring some insight being from Detroit and then Virginia, if you could talk about, and obviously Heather jump in because these are all related, but go ahead, Elise. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> I had just finished watching <laughs> and I saw your text message, Chris, and I was just like, oh, badad, I was there. I, I, I am born and raised in Detroit. I was living in Ann Arbor at that time. I had just started work at the Labor Study Center at the University of Michigan when they murdered Vincent Chen. And it's really interesting because I, first of all, black shake dancer was never any story that I heard. It was I, right, right. that woman or heard her name or the other white woman who was in it. Not, not, not a word. None of, that. none of that footage, not the police officers, not the eyewitness. I didn't hear any of that. All I heard was White auto workers in Detroit are pissed off. No, not white auto workers. Everybody was mad because the Japanese was invading, she was invading and, and cutting down on the jobs in, in Michigan at that time. And I knew that was deception. I just, in that moment, I was like going, this is not about cars, but your film really brought it back. It's, oh, hell no. These men murdered this man with malice and forethought and got a fine? I and mean, not, a, not, not a day in jail. That is just out completely and utterly outrageous in that time period. And I mean, it just is right up to now. It's right up to George Floyd. And it's, it's the, uh, the women in Atlanta being murdered. It's the whole Asian menace crap that has been perpetuated in this country for generations. And that, 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 that okay. That they got away with murder, literally, not not figuratively, and his accomplice. If you hold somebody while somebody hits them with a baseball bat, you are just as responsible because you held the person. But okay, that, that all that aside. But, but, but they, I wanted, but I wanted to connect it to having seen both films back to back. I was having the same cognitive dissonance that I think you're talking about, Elise, which is, I, I, I watched Complicit first, and I've been to China, and I I have. So I'm angry at the companies. I'm angry at the government. I've met Chinese people. They're fine. And, and then you watch Who Killed Vincent Chen and you have that, that scene in the bus with the auto workers. And, but they're saying, but it's not, we're not, there's not a racist bone in my body. And who does that sound like? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, so to go between those two films, it was a, just that this is, you've got health issues. You've got the whole thing, but I don't know, Virginia? Yeah, I think what's interesting about these two films together, it does, it does show like the range of systemic racism and the, how, mm. how the problem is not just one individual company or certainly like one individual auto worker uh, gone astray. And so as we're talking about the movement for Black Lives today and George Floyd's murder, what is important about the movement, obviously, is that 
it critiques systemic racism and it, it goes deeper and it's not just about bad cop and we can't just scapegoat one person, but we have to take a, a deeper look. It's interesting because in conversations I've had with Paula Michigan, who have been working on this, and of course that's central to a lot of their framing of what's going on with AAPI hate right now. And they're organizing to do a, a big anniversary next year around the murder, because it's the 40th next year. So they're going to be doing hopefully a, a, a citywide event. It's interesting when they discuss the, the non-solidarity shown by auto workers, by the union, and so what, what did we do as organizations, as organized labor to recognize this? And I think we've gotten better. So I think, but it shows how rank and file workers in the community do need to push bigger organizations to take the right position on things. And I think there, there probably was a failure all around in terms of recognizing what was going on and to fall into that trap of buy American and protect American workers and not recognizing globalization and seeing capital can move freely. And therefore we have to look at international solidarity and not just protectionism in our own backyard. So just the, the global implications here resonate in both movies and, and in both situations, obviously in a little bit different ways, but that was an important uh, theme for me, I think, because as organizers, I think we have to just be aware of who not just our audience is, but who our allies are and Anymore, I just think it's not just those in our backyard. It's we have to be aware of how connected, interconnected we are with the supply chains and capital being able to move internationally and across borders. So workers need to be thoughtful about that. So that's, a, yeah, that's a big theme that came out for me. Heather, one of the, and I don't know if you've seen Who Killed Vincent or seen it recently. Yeah. Yes. One of, one of the things that struck me, and it, it may just have been watching them back to back, but the hero, if you will, to me of the movie was his mother. Mm. And then I connected that back to, I think one of the most moving scenes to me was the father of the young man who jumped to his death. And I found that those, there's a scene where the mother, after one of the verdicts can't, she looked to me like she was having a stroke that she just could not she'd been through so much and she just she was trying and she just couldn't speak and that scene connected to your scene with the father where he's sitting there with his son who he had named after the eagle that flies and and I, I that I don't know let me just throw that to you and see if your thoughts oh absolutely getting to know that family was such an important part of the whole experience of making complicit because that father was just so devoted to his son and was willing to do everything and give up everything. They moved from their home a thousand miles away to the area right near the hospital in order for them to be there. Ming Quinpong was getting his treatment for leukemia and they were living in a small apartment. It was five minutes walk from the Hong Kong border. And so I wrote to the company ASM, which is the largest Dutch semiconductor manufacturer for the smartphone technology in Holland and told them about the case and because he had worked for their company, which they were majority owned from the Dutch partner at the time when he was sick. But as soon as the Hong Kong media started publishing reports about his case, they actually 
reduced their ownership in the Shenzhen company to below 50%. They had been at uh, something like 59% previous to that. But Apple Daily, which has since been shut down by the Chinese government and their founder and director has now been given a long prison term recently by the Chinese. That was one of the great publications in Hong Kong for exposés on violations of corporate power, among many other things. But I wrote to the company and said, the family lives five minutes away. Will you pay for him to get treatment in Hong Kong? Because we don't think that the treatment has been sufficient and he's been given a terminal diagnosis here. Silence, wouldn't respond. Then I tried to do a phone call and actually got a guy on the phone. Um, but just not willing to take responsibility. And I think one of the things that runs through both complicit and Vincent Chin in terms of the major themes is this lack of responsibility yes. that the corporations are willing to take and the complicity and not just the corporations, but like the judge and Vincent Chin, so complicit and the friends and even the the uh, perpetrators themselves with the stories that they told themselves to rationalize and dismiss what you know, oh it just was something that happened foreordained for oh, yeah. like every day you reach into the back of the car and take out a baseball yeah. bat and beat somebody's brains out please yeah it was just ridiculous but i think it gave great insight into the lies people are willing to tell themselves in order to get what they want. And we're seeing that with corporations, we're seeing that with the legal system. And I think it's important just to keep driving those messages home because as we the people, we have an ability to change that. Judges get recalled when there's rising up when people can't take it anymore. Companies get in a lot of trouble and they get prosecuted when somebody rings an alarm, whether it's journalism to start and then stakeholders, workers, as long as we're in a free society, there's a lot that we can do. But then when there's a country like China, where people don't have the right to do those things, yet we're in such an intertwined relationship with the country, with its corporations, with the government, we really have to start looking at just how close we want to be and how much more we want to be enabling the violations of human rights and allegations of genocide and we're funding that by our, our, our role as consumers. We're buying products from the factories with using slave labor and the workers are given a choice. Go work in these factories hundreds of miles away for almost no money or go into a detention center. So do you get strange clicks on your phone? No, I wouldn't say I do. I'm, a, I'm small potatoes. Yeah, no really uh, seems to take any interest in me, but I would say that the self-censorship of people who are in relationships that pay the bills with Apple, film festivals, broadcast media in the U.S. are the reason why you haven't heard more about Complicit. It's been broadcast on news programs all over uh, Europe, Canada, Australia. It's been available on platforms there, but we could hardly get into any film festivals. I couldn't get any funders in the U.S. except the one fully independent funder that I approached, which was uh, New York State Council of the Arts, because they, no yeah, they had no relationship to Apple, but everybody else had investments in Apple, MacArthur, Ford, all these foundations that I applied to and who had grants from in the past and who knew me, they wouldn't touch it. And I had talked to someone who had been a program officer at Ford and he said, if it's a company in our portfolio, we're, not, we're just not going to go there because we don't want 
the company to start losing money and their stock price to go down and then our portfolio goes down. It's just, oh, okay, great. But I found that everywhere we went, like we were hoping to have our um, world premiere at the Austin Film Festival South by Southwest because it has a whole technology focus. Then I found out Apple was on the plenary for opening night. So we're, okay, that's not going to happen. And it just happened with festival after festival, even where we had an inside person who was had agreed to watch the film. If they said no, I was able to go back and find that they had an iTunes deal or some kind of a sponsorship with Apple and they don't want those relationships to be compromised. And so they just self-censor. I even got a call from someone who said he was um, interested in being a executive producer because he had good relations with HBO. And he said he thought that he could persuade HBO to pick up Complicit for its premiere. And then he called me back and said, actually, I can't do it because I just got a deal from Apple to make a film for them. God. Not like Apple was going to pull the plug if they, I mean, Complicit wasn't, they'd never even heard of Complicit at that point. It was still in the filming stage and we hadn't even released a 10 minute trailer yet. People, they don't want to risk it. It's a story in and of itself. When you talk about complicity, it's like the perfect example. All of these webs that you can't penetrate because of all this uh, connection. Yeah, that's a story in and of itself. Yeah. So we need to wrap up. This has been, uh, I really appreciate your time and, and your thoughtfulness from both of you on these issues. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion, which I imagine you're going to delve even more deeply into on Sunday. Uh, Christine on one of the filmmakers for Who Killed Vincent Chin will also be there. So it should be a great discussion with her and Heather. Absolutely. And just actually just a, a quick final question, maybe to you both. What's a film that you've seen recently that, that sort of stood out that you're maybe still thinking about? I'm always Partly it's just selfish. I'm, Elise and I was always looking for what should we be watching? Did just re-watch re Pride, which... Uh -huh just is always so glorious and uplifting for me. So that just sticks and sticks. But we had a couple of, of showings and we're speaking with some folks who had been involved in the strike from Britain in a, another event that I had attended. So that's probably the most recent filming. That's a perennial favorite of our audiences uh, at, at the Labor Film Festival because it's a great, it's a great story and it has a, a relatively good ending. Yeah. Are there any, any thoughts for us? Uh, yes, actually, I've been writing a screenplay the uh, whole time that I've been uh, down here in the Caribbean. I got started in March of 2020 when they first started talking about the conspiracy theory of the Wuhan Virology Center behind COVID-19. So I just started working on a COVID thriller because I thought it would be interesting to see where it all went and I wasn't convinced that the Wuhan wet market was necessarily the origin of the pandemic because in China historically the pandemics have always started in Guangdong province which is um, much hotter weather subtropical huge population a lot of public health issues historically and Wuhan was none of those things but they did have the level four biosafety research lab there. So I've watched every movie about pandemics and um, infectious diseases how uh, you oh. can find. Oh, so that leads me actually, because we we're having a discussion. We we're thinking about showing some of those in the film festival. Did, so you watched all of those. 
any ones that were that really because some of those really work and some of those don't in, in my own opinion we're, we're I'm just curious about your your thoughts on, on which ones you found particularly effective there's a new one out that's on prime and i can't remember the name right now but i can look it up in the chat and send mm -hmm. it to but they're all the same because there's a formula. There's a formula for these films, which is while the world is going up in flames, while a pandemic is raging, it ultimately has to be about the journey of the main character right. and you know, how they're healing a relationship or healing some part of them that's broken in the process. So I would say that almost all of them are the same, but the uh, new one that's out, I was interested in because it seemed to be on such a low budget that they basically didn't have to build hardly any sets at all. They were just in an apartment building and in someone's yard for the most part. And parking. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I read about that. There's a real limited, because they made it during the pandemic, so they couldn't really mm. do anything. Yeah. Yes, everybody's locked behind closed doors. There's almost no scenes out in the streets in society, but they managed to create, I think, some good suspense and some good issues. And I'm sorry that it slipped my mind, but the film that I was going to say was the one that I've seen recently that I highly recommend is called Sorry to Miss You. And it's an English film about a worker for, the, for Amazon or the equivalent of Amazon in the UK. And it's extremely touching and it really I thought illuminated the challenges around having a, a company like Amazon, companies also like Amazon, but basically Amazon being so huge is just having a devastating effect on the workforce and, and society at so many levels. And they covered quite a bit of it. And I thought they did a good job. Ken Loach, he's a great, he's amazing. Ken Loach tried to retire 10 years ago. I think he's in his 80s and he just keeps making movies. He's, he's amazing. So good recommendation. Lovely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for your film, Heather, Virginia. Here's the ET moment. Oh, yep. We're going to wind up with the ET moment. Right. Race is a political construct created by the ruling class to separate the working class. And that this idea that anybody who's physically different from you is an enemy is what Steven Spielberg mm -hmm. and in the film E.T. challenged. Instead of the alien being something to be afraid of and to be attacked and killed, or that they're coming to attack and kill, they became a friend and a companion. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that transition had happened. The day, the day to Ursula still came close, but E.T. was the one that would physically look different mm -hmm. and came from someplace else and was accepted as not as an enemy, but as a friend. It's so subversive, Elise. I love it. Thank you, Elise. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.